Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. Slightly unusual episode for you this week because uh, I'm on holiday. You'll be able to hear church bells tolling sometimes <laughs> during this recording because uh, we're staying in the countryside right next to a church. And we decided to do audio only rather than uh, skip a week. So there won't be any video associated with this episode. Um, but we have a particularly fantastic guest, Peachy Keenan who is a columnist at the American Mind and a domestic extremist, according to her latest book, which is all about how she went from being a progressive to a, uh, well, a domestic extremist, (laughs) extremely domestic uh, mother of five. We spoke about uh, antinatalism, about Peachy's journey away from being a progressive. And in the extended version of this episode, we also spoke about the uh, the online right and uh, Bronze Age perverts as a political influencer and about Peachy's views on the term reactionary feminism. So you can find that extended episode at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So, Peachy, I think one of the things that people might not necessarily realise if they uh, read your columns or just have a sort of glance at your book is the fact that you um, you do live as a domestic extremist, your term, but you also are right in the belly of the beast culturally in terms of where you live and what you've done professionally. And, you know, like anyone looking at you, if they didn't know how many kids you have, which kind of gives the game away would think that you are a progressive. Right. I am just, I look like one of them. I act like one of them. You know, I dress (laughs) like one of them. And uh, they don't know that I'm just, I'm walking around, but like a regular liberal progressive Los Angelino. But I am, yes, as you said, a domestic extremist. I'm extremely domestic. I'm a stay-at-home mom of five. And in LA, you know, you have to be very careful Um, I'm sure you heard this, but people like me who, you know, there's lots of us out here. um, We can't put any, you know, flags on our houses. Even American flags can sometimes get you in trouble in Los Angeles. With neighbors. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's in my neighborhood, um, it's sort of died down. It's interesting the the number of rainbow flags I see on houses. But starting with like that when Biden got elected and especially after George Floyd, so many houses had BLM flags. Um, transgender flags, rainbow flags, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, in this house, we believe so many houses had that sign in this house, we believe, you know, love is love, you know, no person is illegal, like all these immigrants welcome. And my house kind of was conspicuous, because I did not have any of that stuff. (laughs) Any of the flair, the liberal flair they like to put on their homes. But you have to be careful, for sure. And I've been sort of since my book came out, you know, I was on Fox News four times. I've been on all these podcasts and shows showing my face, kind of coming out of my anonymity. Peachy Keenan is, you know, my pseudonym. Um, I've been like looking around like, is anyone going to recognize me? Like, am I going to be, you know, stoned to death in West Hollywood? But they are oblivious. I mean, none of my old friends have really reached out to me. Even my boss at my formerly, at my former job, which is a giant woke Hollywood studio, he called me the other day. And I was like, oh, no, he found out. He saw me on Fox. You know, I'm dead. 
and he had no idea. And he had another question, an unrelated question. And I was like, these people just live in their liberal bubble. Like they don't even know. They don't watch Fox Beach. <laughs> they do not. They do not watch it. <laughs> Can I tell you about the, the flag thing? It's just reminded me when I was like, because I like you, okay. I, um, you know, I live in a bougie suburb of London. I, I, I may have, you know, heterodox opinions, but I actually love sort of, progressive cultural stuff I love oat lattes I love lululemon you know all of this I'm, yeah, I'm like, me too yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> that's so why we're inc- here I'm so incognito <laughs> and so when I arrived when I was in the states earlier this year um to do a speaking engagement and I arrived in the city I'd, like on the east coast that I, I had no knowledge of and I was like I would just kill with an oat latte and a salad <laughs> and so what I did is I followed the BLM flags in people's <laughs> windows until I found a Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. I yeah. mean, it's, my husband and I joke about this all the time because we've had friends who have left LA over the last few years, lots of friends, and moved to red states. You know, the whole thing here is if you're a conservative, are you going to move to a red state? Are you going to go to Florida or Texas? You know, mm-hmm. escape, escape liberal, the liberal bad people, you know. And his thing is, look, the reason they call it flyover country is because flyover country sort of sucks. (laughs) You know, like in the Midwest, you're not going to find the stuff that we grew up with as these sort of, like, I like to joke, I'm a coastal elitist, you know, grew up Mm. by the beach in in Los Angeles. Like you said, the oat lattes, the Lululemon and their culture of like sort of fitness and good food and health food and smoothies and Erewhon, you know, which is like the, where they sell like $17 smoothies, you know. Gwyneth Paltrow's shop, her goop goop food delivery is here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like inject it straight into my veins. (laughs) No, exactly. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm how am I gonna give up my facialist and my colorist, which is where Lana Del Rey gets her hair done? You know what I mean? Like if I move to the to the boondocks, to the to the farmland, I may not have access to that stuff. It's very hard. Like just like you, I'm a city girl. You know, I'm the sort of spoiled urban princess. It is hard <laughs> to sort of reconcile that with my, you know, not even heterodox, like basically like, you know, my quote, far right uh, ideology. How do I, where do I fit in in the world? It's really, there's nowhere. <laughs> I used to work at a, um, sometimes at a co-working space, um, which also had a yoga studio downstairs. And one of the, the perks of going to this co-working space is you could go to lunchtime yoga classes. Um, which is very nice when you're prematurely aged like me and you have a bad back. <laughs> and I, you know, on one occasion, I um, I wrote a piece for the Daily Mail um, because that's my job. And in the morning, and then I came down to do a yoga class. I think it was possible. The, the piece for the mail might have been about trans. It might not. I can't remember exactly. And I came down, and my yoga, my male yoga teacher had pink and blue nail polish on. Oh no. you're like like, please if they they only knew (laughs) I was just last week I was invited by someone I know who's sort of like a moderately well-known person to have lunch at their very private very VIP social club slash restaurant in West Hollywood right where you have to be with a member and when you walk in they put stickers over your phone cameras so you don't take any paparazzi This is where, you know, Megan and Harry come and stay in L.A. when they're here. It's very secret, you know. And so I'm sitting with this woman and she doesn't know really who I am. Like it was in my other life that my other name, she, my dead name, she knew me as. And I'm sitting there and in walks um, 
you know, Will Ferrell, who's the star of the Barbie movie, and mm-hmm. he's meeting he's meeting like his agent from CAA. Everyone there is an agent or a movie star or whatever. And I was like, oh my gosh, if they only knew that I had spent like all of June, like, you know, shitting on Barbie, <laughs> like giving it a bad <laughs> review about it being like this woke feminist propaganda. <laughs> and here I am, you know, sitting with the Barbie people. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. Let's talk about how you be- how this how, how you got here. What was your what was your path? Because you weren't always a domestic extremist, right? You used Not to be, at all. You used to be kind of uh, more at peace with your surrounding culture. <laughs> yes, I was. I was uh, so into fitting in to the culture. I just kind of absorbed, like many young women um, in the West, I absorbed every cultural message that there was. You know, I grew up with Madonna and MTV as a child of the '80s. You know. And even though my parents were sort of like, you know, kind of Reagan, Ronald Reagan re- Republicans, I rejected all that because that was so, that was dorky. That was, that was, that was for nerds. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be guys, you know, I wanted to sort of just live the basic life that we were presented as women. I had no other examples of like how to be except for like, you know, sex in the city. Right. So, um, I went to college. I was apolitical, but I sort of came out in my twenties as just a basic, pro-choice, sort of quasi-feminist. And, you know, the idea that I would have ever wanted to get married in my 20s or even get pregnant was like anathema. That was just, you know, no one was doing that. We were going out. It was all about, you know, where are we going to go out? Where are we going to go? Where's the party? You know, and the whole game was to avoid getting pregnant, to avoid, you know, getting tied down to like some, you know, boring old boyfriend. We were going to do that one day, like in our 30s, we'd settle down, I guess, you know, and I I just looking back, I just think, my goodness, I can't believe that I almost, I almost missed out, you know, I mean, I met my husband in New York City when I was in my late 20s, and I remember thinking like, oh, this is sort of getting serious, and he was a conservative, and I had never met a like political conservative in my entire life. He was the first one. And I was like, well, why do I like him? He's a conservative. My friends will hate him. Like how I can't do this, you know, but I sort of liked him. His toxic masculinity, (laughs) you know, (laughs) kind of won me over. But it was like really hard to sort of figure out, will I be sort of blackballed by my friends, by my group, by my social class, by the girls I went to college with, their lifestyles. They were all basic feminist liberals, you know, and just it, it, it almost held me back. There was a moment where I was like, okay, I have to kind of renounce, you know, my past beliefs, my friends. I can't do both. And I tried for a long time to do both, to sort of, I was as I was becoming politically conservative, socially conservative, um, kind of waking up to the reality of, you know, like you write about the sexual revolution and birth control pill and abortion and realizing kind of too late that I had been, I had been sold all of those lies and I had swallowed every single one, you know. And as I kind of woke up, my friends had not woken up. So I had to kind of live this double life for the first few years of our marriage where my friends would ask me like, well, why are you having a baby so soon? Because I got pregnant like right away almost. What are you doing? Don't you want to like have fun for a while? Like, why are you jumping into motherhood? Like they were sort of felt betrayed that I had gotten married while they were not yet on that track. And so it took me a few years to sort of fully embrace my inner domestic extremist. And I had to really find a new circle of friends, people who wouldn't want to want me, you know, uh, stoned to death Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a conservative. 
I love it you married the first conservative you ever met. I did. <laughs> That's actually true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sorry, so you had your first baby when you were in your late 20s? Early 30s. I'd had a okay. miscarriage. Yeah, the first one was ended in a in a miscarriage at three months, which is so sad. We were so unprepared. Yeah. And I have to say that that experience of going through my first pregnancy and getting really so excited for the baby, we, we were, we were, we were so naive, you know, I didn't even realize, I didn't even know about miscarriage. Cause like I said, none of my friends had been through it yet. I was sort of the first one to go. Yeah. Um, and we were so devastated by that, you know, seeing the heartbeat three months, like we had a name picked out, you know, and, um, that experience made me like after that. And then I had to have, you know, I remember the doctor telling me, you know, the baby's, the, the, the fetus has no heartbeat, you know, it's unfortunately the baby died. And then I realized like, oh my gosh, do I have to have, I didn't know the words like an abortion. What do I have to have? He's like, well, we call it a DNA, a dilation and extraction where they put you to sleep and they basically perform what is essentially an abortion, but it's it's a mis it's a it's a miscarriage. You know, they're just removing the dead fetus. And I had to go through that, and then after that, realizing like, wow, <laughs> okay, wait, wait a second. Women do this voluntarily to live fetuses, and I really realized then what that means and like what that entails and how in the world you could actually do that. And that was really chilling to me. Just to having gone, it's a very kind of, you know, it's brutal. It's, they're putting you to sleep. You're in a hospital. To do that to a living child, your own living child, that that was like really kind of reinforced my kind of proto, um, pro-life beliefs. So like, wow, that is, that's, that's crazy <laughs> um, mm. that you could do that voluntarily. But, but yeah, we had a baby. Then our, our first son was born not too long after that. Thank goodness I got pregnant right away. So you weren't wildly young. No, I was in my 30s. I yeah. had, yeah, I was not young at all. Yeah, but in these social circles, I mean, I, I completely agree. I, like, I, I have lived it myself. In many of these circles, that is considered to be really young. Yeah, basically, the rule seemed to be like, you don't get married till you turn 30. And then you start your family after that. And mm. looking back, I just think, how stupid is that? How dumb? Because you're, you're limiting, you're just going to, you're just limiting your, the size of your family that you would, you would want, because there's only so many children you can have. If you wait until you're 34 or whatever, you can have maybe, maybe two, I don't know you, if you get lucky. And I, I didn't realize that I wanted even a lot of kids. I didn't even know that until mm -hmm. I had my first baby. I was mm -hmm. 32 years old and I realized, oh my gosh, this is awesome. He's the, this is the best. Like, look at this baby. Like what? <laughs> Oh my goodness, this is no one, I was so unprepared for the emotions of that. And then realized, okay, I want him to have siblings. I want him to have, you know, a bunch of siblings if I can. And then you start to run out of time, you know, and you have a miscarriage, you know, people have miscarriages, they can't get pregnant again. And my husband and I have often thought, wouldn't it have been nice to have started a little earlier? I didn't meet him, you know, I didn't meet him till, till I met him, but I just didn't have that mindset. And that's why I wrote my book, Domestic Extremists, you know, and I think part of the reason you wrote your book is to try to wake young women up and like, listen, honey, you know, your mid twenties, that's actually a great time to start thinking about this stuff and get this started. I like how you start the book, your, your sort of 
pre-epigraph is your um in this house we believe <laughs> list <laughs> and the one I was thinking of was that in this house we believe babies are good more babies are better yeah 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 <laughs> yeah I did not know that you know um and that list is a you know it's a it's a it, like I'm parodying the the signs that I see on all my neighbors houses here in Los Angeles which they mm. have these crazy like rainbow colored signs in this house we believe you know love is love. No person is illegal. You know, take the vaccine whatever they, whatever the black lives matter. They have all the transgender is there's 85 genders, you know, that's what they believe. So I was just parodying it with my own version of that. Um, but yeah, I did not know how good babies were until I had one because the culture tells women from a very early age, from the time you get your first period, that babies are dangerous. Pregnancy is bad avoid it at all costs, you know, mm -hmm. and if Planned Parenthood, the whole, just the name of that organization, you better plan it. You better get, be ready and be careful and carefully, you know, make sure you only have one or two max, you know, all, all my friends here in California, two children. And I write about this in the book is like almost like the legal limit, you know, like once I, once you have two, that's it. You're done. People would ask me, you're done, right? Are you done? You're done. You're not going to have any more. Are you like they're ner They like police each other. They're, they're, they're sort of like longhousing you into limiting the size of your family. And when I was pregnant with my third, I was coming home. I had two, I had like, I was going to have three under three. Okay. So I don't necessarily recommend that. Like having three children <laughs> under the age of three, <laughs> you know, like that's not something that you need to do, but I, that happened to me. And so I was coming home and I was big and pregnant and I had my like one-year-old boy and my two-year-old boy and my neighbor saw me and she's like, what? Are you pregnant again? And I was like, oh no, here we go. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I did. Yes, I am. In fact, thank you. You know? And I was waiting for like, oh, congratulations. And she's like, what are you? Some kind of Mormon fundamentalist? And I was like, <laughs> um, this is before I even became Catholic, but you know, even three kids is considered a taboo. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. Can I tell you, a, a, a friend of mine who uh, we had babies about the same time, her, 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 her babies were younger than mine, um, she was, um, we were talking recently about like basically this question, you know, how many to have or at what point is it, yeah. do you become a, um, a loon <laughs> in the eyes of society? <laughs> yeah. And she said that she, um, you know, there's this app on TikTok um, which ages you very, very convincingly. Okay. Yeah, it's called Aged and it makes it you look like you're in your 70s. Oh, gosh. Um, and oh, no. yeah, and there's been quite a lot of sort of commentary on this because lots of journalists, young female journalists generally doing it and then writing about the sort of um, nervous breakdowns they had <laughs> as a consequence <laughs> oh, of seeing yeah, these images of, of themselves. And she said that she did it. She recommended that I did as well. She said she did this. She took a screenshot of herself, age 70. And she said the overwhelming feeling she had looking at this image of herself in the future was, I want to have more kids. <gasps> wow because she was like I want to be a grandmother of lots wow and I think that I know right now I have moments where I'm so tired I'm so stressed you know of mm -hmm. course yeah. um but I think actually when I'm that age I will be very glad that I did this multiple times yeah that's so that's so fascinating and that's that's so real I mean that's mm. real and we're kind of programmed biologically and just you know, eternally, it's like a human truth that that's what we kind of all want secretly. And I, I did write about this, that, you know, I think a lot about my old age and, you know, I'm not that far away. Um, 
time goes very quickly. And, and I think that part of sort of progressive liberalism is like a denial of death mm. and a denial of mortality. And like, yes, you, you know, you 28 year old on TikTok, you know, you day in the life, get ready with me videos, single girl. Yes, you also are going to get old and you also are going to die. And, you know, part of being a Catholic is sort of reconciling that because as a liberal, as a liberal atheist, my whole life, that was my whole childhood. My parents were total atheists. It was a complete denial of death. Like, don't think about it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) You know, here in LA, you know, women look kind of ageless. They're constantly getting, you know, whatever they need to do to their faces. You can't tell people's ages anymore. They're sort of ageless and they're 70 year old women are like looking amazing in Pilates outfits and stuff. Um, but you're all going to die, you know? And um, <laughs> part of the thing I do think about is when, you, when you're when you there, like, who do, you, who do you want to have with you at the end? What what regrets might you have? And the one regret I didn't want, we're all going to have regrets, you know? The one regret I don't want to have is I wish I had had one more. I wish I had had, uh, you know, I wish I had more grandchildren. I see women who have one or two children who are like my parents' ages, who are boomers, and, you know, their kids, not all of them launched. Someone maybe had an addiction. Someone had, couldn't find a partner. They don't have, they maybe have one or two grandchildren, you know, and they had, let's say they had three kids, they get one or two grandchildren and they're kind of like the pyramid is inverted. You know, it's like mm. more kids in the eighties. Now you have much fewer grandchildren. I don't, I definitely don't want that. I think as you get older, what do you have, what do you have to look forward to? I don't look forward to getting old. <laughs> no one does. But at least you can have these wonderful bambinos who are, you know, my goodness, your grandchildren. I sort of can't wait. <laughs> you know that Mitt, speaking of Mormons, you know that Mitt Romney has 25 grandchildren. I know. I <laughs> God bless the Mormons for that. Yeah, I've seen a photo of them and they're all like incredibly mm-hmm. good looking and they just look like Mitt Romney. <laughs> they, they, like, they look so good. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to do like rent those sort of stands that they use for school photos in order to take a photo of all of them. Well, Louise, I have uh, bad news for you because here in my Catholic community, my trad Catholic community um, on the outskirts of LA, I happen to know a few families who have way more than that. They've got them beat. I know <laughs> I, uh, last year, my friend's mother-in-law died. She was like in her nineties um, and she was sort of part of this sort of famous family. She had 17 children. Wow. I met this woman. Um, they were just, they were just really in love and they met really young, you know, and they just went for it and it just happened. And so they, when they died, 17 children, I think they had at least a hundred grandchildren. I think they had a a lot of great grandchildren. And I think even some great, great grandchildren had been born by that, by that time. And just an unbelievably huge family. They all seem pretty excited about it. I mean, and her, my friend who's, who was the daughter-in-law of this woman, she just had her 12, she's like my age and she had, she had her 12th baby. Okay. This is in Los Angeles. And her oldest also had a baby that year, <laughs> her grandchild that year. So again, I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm not recommending this necessarily to have 12 children. Um, but it, it, it happens. I mean, people kind of get into this lifestyle of like, babies are good. I don't mind this. In fact, it becomes a sort of just a sacrificial love. Like, I'm just gonna, you know, you kind of don't fight it anymore. You're just, you know, as a Catholic, you're sort of supposed to be open to life. And these women just kind of embrace that. And they're like, whatever God, I'll have as many as God wants me to have. 
Um, look, I have five. I'm totally done. Okay. I'm totally aged out of it. Um, you don't need to have 12, but it's sort of beautiful to think about these women who just basically were like, yes, this is what I want to do. No one forced them into it. You know, their husbands didn't, you know, tie them to the bed or tie them into the kitchen, force them. They want to do this. This is the lifestyle they've chosen. And I mean, for, talk about domestic extremists, you know, right, they are yeah. just in the midst of LA. <laughs> it's right. Amazing. No, um, I know. Do you think, I mean, I, I, so I, I obviously completely accept that there are some, um, some women are, are really enthused about the 12 kids life. And also if you start young enough, that doesn't actually have to mean being constantly pregnant. You could have reasonable gaps. Absolutely. If you started in your early twenties, but I have heard stories about women who, who are converts, right? And there's the zeal of the convert is, is a factor potentially in some um, Trekath families um, who've had, so many kids and so close together they end up with quite profound health problems like having to have you know having had multiple c-sections causing problems or like i've i've i i i've heard on the grapevine of a woman who ended up with a stoma because she had her kids so close together um and you know it doesn't if you use natural family planning effectively that shouldn't need to happen but do you think sometimes people get so kind of like I don't know, their, their, their domestic extremism becomes so. An addiction. Yeah, almost. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I absolutely would not recommend like having, you know, a one baby every year. Obviously that's so difficult. I use natural family planning. I mean, I used, I was on the birth control pill for, you know, college and my twenties and, um, but I have used natural family planning and it, 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 it does work. I mean, I write about this. It When I discovered it, I was like, oh, this is sort of magical. And I started to learn about your fertility and charts. And you could actually really either avoid pregnancy on certain days, or it also helped me well, using those charts, help me get pregnant. Mm-hmm. I've had no awareness of like my cycle and how to know when you're ovulating. And those are actually, there's only really three or four days per month that you actually physically can get pregnant. You know, and so I would like, you know, when you have those like magical little windows, you know, you and your husband need to like light some candles and open a glass bottle of wine, you know, if you want to get pregnant. And I was like, why don't I know this magic spell? Like, why don't I know these, this information about my own body? I have no, I I had no idea until I started getting pregnant. You know, I had a miscarriage. So I was trying to figure out how do I get pregnant again quickly? All that information is sort of hidden from us. We are taught about getting what birth control pills to use, STDs, you know, make sh- dental dams, all this kind of crazy stuff. <laughs> Ten- dental dams. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was taught about that in like ninth grade. I was like, yeah, what, the, what, the, what is a dental? I was like, I've, I've never. I've never encountered <laughs> one in the wild. <laughs> no, n- never. Like, I'm sorry. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't, like, how horny are you? Okay, not that horny. <laughs> um. But yeah, no, I, I, I think that obviously no one should ever risk a health problem. I mean, after my fourth child, I had had a heart condition uncovered at 27 weeks pregnant that required me to be like put in the emergency room. They had to actually put me to sleep and cardiovert me, Louise, which is like paddles mm. to get my, my heart. I had a, tach- a form of tachycardia that was like my heart was racing and the OB came, it was like, it was like an episode of ER. It was like every doctor there. And there was an OB in there. And he's like, I was like, why are you, what are you doing here? You're an OB. He's like, yeah, but 
you know, if things go south, I need to, I need to get your baby out. And I was like, Oh Lord. <laughs> mm. Oh geez. And good news. It all turned out fine. I catered him to term. He's healthy. And I, I had like a very minor procedure after that. I was cured. Very good outcome. Um, but after that, I was like, I'm done. Like there's no way. And so for four and a half years, we used natural family planning and it sort of worked great. I mean, no one should ever feel compelled to continue having children when they have health issues or it's too much. Absolutely. But maybe women just get addicted to it. It is addictive, you know, meeting your newborns. To mm. me, it's like a drug. Babies are great. They're cute. They're just cute. You have you're such a cute one. <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> you do. Listeners should be aware. He's a, he's <laughs> he is so cute. He's a particularly good one. He is um, good. Yeah, I mean, what is it do you think that makes this is the theme that I'm always sort of returning to, partly because of writing um, my next book on um, antinatalism, and it's something that you um, write about in your book as well. This kind of this aversion to big families, or even to children, full stop. It mm-hmm. seems to be very kind of deep rooted oh, yeah. in progressive culture. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And it seems to be, um, you know, when you don't before you have children, it's it's pervasive. Like if you're on an airplane and there's like a family with like a screaming baby, you know, I myself am guilty yeah. of thinking like, shut that kid up. Like, what the hell are they doing? Children should be banned from airplanes. You know, you have when you see a, a child acting up at Disneyland or whatever, and you're like, oh, look at that annoying brat, you know, Um that's just sort of pervasive that these babies are annoying. They're gross. They poop. Like, why would you want to do that to yourself? Like, why would you, what did Barack Obama say? He didn't want his, his daughter punished with a baby, you know, as a, like getting pregnant, you know, but when she was not unmarried or whatever. And there, that is the attitude of, of liberal feminists that ch- children are a punishment. They are a burden to you. They will ruin your figure. They will, stretch you out in places that you don't want to be stretched out, <laughs> you know, and it's just this very narcissistic, um, this is part of our narcissistic consumerist culture. You know, I mean, you have to be able to afford, how are you going to fit into your Lululemon pants, Louise, and like afford all your oat milk lattes? They're very stretchy. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you my, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I promise this podcast is not sponsored by Lululemon. <laughs> but, um, my, my uh, Lululemon aligned leggings took me all the way up to term. Like their, their stretchiness is amazing. Oh, okay. So then, Sorry, go and, on. <laughs> yeah. So we're recommending that Lululemon sponsor Louise Perry, and we can encourage all of our domestic extremist <laughs> readers to get themselves maternity clothes. Um, it's a great yeah, match. Yeah. It is, actually. The, the, yeah, the left hate, hates kids. Um, and I was guilty of this for a long time. Like, look at those nasty little kids. Like, ugh, you know, only when you have them. Suddenly, you feel mercy on the mother with the screaming toddler on the airplane. You've you've been there. You know what it's like. You're in solidarity with them. You're in the trenches now with with them. And so it sort of is like you you, you become a member of the club and you understand it. But because so many fewer women are actually doing it, there's fewer people to sort of sympathize. You know, I mean, I've been yelled at by older women childless women when my baby was like crying in a store and I was like trying to quickly, you know, undo my shirt to nurse him, you know, before anyone heard him screaming. And an older woman stopped me and yelled at me. It was like, you better make that baby stop crying. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what happened to the kindly grandmother who, 
you know, let me help you, dear. You know, oh, you know, he's just hungry. There seems to be this attitude of the babies are a burden and annoying, just maybe because so many fewer women have them or have a lot of them or, you know, they're, they're child free. Yeah, it's. I think it's also because of people having children. I, I, I mean, men too, right? Like the later you have them, the more of your life you can go without having ever interacted with a baby, and without realizing, therefore, that the the person who wants that baby to shut up the most is the parents, <laughs> like by some distance. Right. No. Exactly. Yeah, but people can people can go decades as adults without having held a baby. Now. I did. I did. Yeah. I, I wrote about this too. When I had my first son, he was the first newborn that I had been in contact with since my little sister had been born, like some, you know, 30 years, 25 years prior. I had literally never been around and changed a baby, held a baby since my little sister had been born. I didn't have cousins. I didn't have a big family. I didn't know any, you know, trads. I, I was not around any big families. I, 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 Later on, I realized, oh my goodness, I had no exposure to babies, none. My husband, however, kind of grew up as a pronatalist. I kind of got lucky, right, with this guy because he had been the eldest of seven. His mother had like baby fever her whole life. She started having children in her early 20s and she just like loved babies. She was always craving a new one, right? So she ended up with seven um, and so he grew up the oldest, he grew up as a six-year-old changing diapers, making bottles, you know, <laughs> bathing his little sisters, like helping them, like watching them babysitting. He was sort of this mat, like this kind of, um, you know, almost like a young dad to his siblings. And so when he, when we got married, he was excited. He was, he was like very excited to have children. And he was the one who always wanted another one before I did. And so I think that is unusual. And it is, like you said, I think you're exactly right. It's it's that we don't have exposure to babies. They're mm. hidden away. They're locked away in the daycare. They're they're not welcome in polite society. I notice when I'm in London and the, the really kind of um, fertile uh, ethnic minority in London is the um, Haredi Jews who mm. um, mostly live in North London. But um, you see them around and because they dress very distinctively, you can sort of mm -hmm. easily spot them. And um, one of the things that's always jumped out to me is how uh, often you'll see the dads pushing the buggies hmm. and the dads actually being very involved, um, even though this is a very kind of traditional group, right, mm -hmm. um, with very clear gender roles. And I, I think that possibly when you, when you reach that level of fertility, you hmm. just have to the dads just have to change nappies and push prams um, because you can't slink off and drink beer and watch TV. Um, you can just about do that in a traditional society where you have two or three kids, but you can't do that if you have seven kids. Right. Um, so, you, yeah, you end up with this kind of – you go so far towards domestic extremism that actually you have um, men doing much more care work. <laughs> Right. Trad life leads to men becoming, you know, real, real gender parity in the home, gender equality with the housework. Yeah. Um, so interesting. Uh, something I was surprised by in, um, sorry, you can hear the church bells in the background because we're actually Absolutely. on holiday at the moment and we're, awesome. we're right next to a beautiful church in uh, reading your book is that um, you, I mean, as we discussed at the beginning, you are, you don't live on a homestead you you know you you are in many ways living a completely sort of um typical 
uh, bougie urban life. Um, and that includes also having been a working mother. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, part-time, remote, all of this, you know, much like me. But um, you, 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 haven't, you haven't done sort of the full trad stereotype. <laughs> You've just yeah. had loads of kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, it's true. I mean, and I, yeah, I do write about this in my book that I don't look like you know the kind of the trad, the trad wives on TikTok. I don't wear you know little fifties outfits and high heels and vacuum. I don't love housework. You know, I don't, I don't spend all day baking pies for my husband. Okay, sorry. Like I'm just, <laughs> I haven't really changed who I am. You know, and like I said, I'm a. I was a suburban coastal elitist living in like secular, bougie West Side Los Angeles. Like that was just not, you know, that was just not in the cards for me. I don't live on a homestead. I don't have a farm. I don't really like barnyard animals. You know what I'm saying? Like my friends even are like, I have my chi- my chickens. Like, does anyone want to buy a chicken for me? And I have all my eggs. I'm like, I don't want to go near a chicken, like a live <laughs> chicken. Like I'm not touching that thing ever. Okay. That's a little dinosaur. Like I'm not going near a cow. I, I just, it's too late for me to embrace my inner like farm girl. I, I just, I missed the boat. Okay. But that's okay. Like, I mean, I really wrote this book for people like me because the mm-hmm. people who do, who are living the farm life, who are living the full trad life with the gardens and the farms and milking the cows, they don't really need me. You know, they're kind of doing it great. They're doing great. What I wrote this book for was women like me, like you, who, you know, are kind of coming to this after kind of realizing the cold, harsh reality of like postmodern Western civilization, which is not a warm, cozy place for women who want to become mothers. And so we're kind of left in our sort of sterile urban environments, figuring out how to cobble together a life that now we finally realize that we do want, but how, how do we even go about that? And the good news is that you can do it anywhere you are. You can do it in a city apartment. You can do it in your suburban house. You don't need to run off to the woods. You know, the, the woods would get very crowded if we all kind of decamped for the, you know, the bucolic uh, paradise of the farmland. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I'm just me. I'm just a sort of like, you know, I'm not pretending to be like, I churn, churn your butter, ladies. That's really not what it's about. It's not about the aesthetics of like your pristine farm life on Instagram. You know, my life is very just like a regular suburban house. I do laundry, I, you know, we drive our car minivan to the store, you know, that's it. We don't have a farm. Um, but you can still do it. You can still put together the family size that you want if you kind of decide to. It's about a mindset shift, I think, more than anything else. Mm. I'm very interested in sustainable food production. Mm. And um, I had Ashley Colby on the podcast a little while ago talking about their Mm-hmm. Um, their their homestead um, as a family and um, I think what she's doing is really cool and interesting but there's definitely a version of this that you see on social media which is extremely LARPy like the churning your own butter kind of end of I saw some some image recently of a woman who was like washing washing the family's laundry in a running stream like an ice cold running stream <laughs> with like bright red hands because <laughs> it's mm. poor you know and, mm-hmm. and I was like honey like sometimes modernity <laughs> is good okay and, mm-hmm. That's and right. at the very least use a bucket do you know what I mean <laughs> even if you're not beating it with a stone machine yeah like and I you know I I it's 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 sort of predictable, isn't it, that you would see people swinging right to the other direction against 
a sort of mainstream which is clearly very flawed and rejecting modernity entirely but it seems like an actually an actually good and sustainable um middle ground is surely a better option yeah and I, I, the thing is i understand wanting to live that lifestyle i also look at those instagram reels of like young women in their little farmhouse kitchens like making their own butter or making their own cheese or whatever it is and i do think one day, you know, one day, maybe I'll make my own butter too, <laughs> you know, with the uh, 18th century butter press that they found on, you know, some antique store and I'll restore the the buggy and well, I don't know. Um, it's such a fantasy. Um, but yeah, that LARP to me is just take, would take too much work. I'm too, you know, my husband, and I, both of us are just these like urban urbanites, you know, we lived in New York, Chicago, we, we we're big city people. So it's like very hard to figure out how to do that. Um, I sort of wish my kids had some of those skills. Um, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. But but the thing is, I agree with you. What, what we're doing now, sustainable food and all, all of all of our lives, it does feel right now very, un, totally unsustainable. Food is so expensive. I know it is in London. It absolutely is here. Gas is so expensive. Housing is so, it, it feels like even to have a normal lifestyle, um, it almost feels out of reach uh, unless you're very, very rich. And so I think we're going to have, unfortunately, no choice, or maybe fortunately, but to figure out a way to cobble together a more sustainable lifestyle. And you know, when I think about the poisoning of our food supply, you know, I'm very BAP on this. Like there's xenoestrogens. I tell my sons all the time, there's xenoestrogens in, this, in the processed food. You know, there's don't eat anything with seed oils. Like I totally am a seed oil truther too. Factory farming. I won't buy. I won't buy chicken or meat. We're not, we're not vegetarians, but I. I don't want to buy that stuff because I know it's been pumped full of hormones. You know, they're they're giving. My sister told me they're giving cows uh, mRNA vaccines now, like into the farm animals. I'm like, oh, uh, do we? Is that okay? Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, finding some sort of idyllic middle ground would would be perfect and. There's a lot of people who, who want to have like intentional communities, you know, they're moving. I have friends who are moving kind of in clumps to certain different neighborhoods in mm. more conservative areas to try to kind of marshal their resources together. Mm. I know um, people who are doing that too. Yeah. I mean, I love that. You know, I would like to do that also one day, but yeah, I think, I don't know, do we like buy houses around a communal farm? Is it a commune? I mean, again, here's the crossover between sort of heterodox conservatism and like very crunchy liberal hippie stuff you know we have a it's funny isn't it yeah mm -hmm. I mean it, it's interesting now that actually being preoccupied with something like seed oils is associated with the right now <laughs> but that's kind of sometimes obsessive interest in sort of the, the 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 provenance of your food was a lefty thing until not that long ago it's like gone to the it's gone to the other end of the well I mean well no Food, having particular food practices is kind of classic in-group behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's why, that's why so many religions have particular rules around food and things like that. So it's not surprising that people would end up having different food cultures based on politics as a consequence of polarization. I guess what's happening is that people on the left are getting more into sort of vegan stuff like oat milk. I'm trying to wean myself off oat milk <laughs> for real because I realized that actually, oh, this is a tangent, but the, um, 
Oatly, which is this incredibly delicious oat milk, which now is, it's probably all over LA as well. The kind oh, of yeah. grey uh-huh. bottles of Oatly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually an incredibly predatory company right. who run it. It's They, they present themselves as being all cosy, but actually they're incredibly brutal to their sort of, like they sued, they, I can't remember the whole story, but they like sued some small competitor and basically ran them out of business. And they're, they're actually sort of, you know, like big oat is a thing okay that's so funny um and also there's canola oil in it or some other kind of oil like that right. so it's not no. it's actually an ultra processed food so anyway but that kind of super processed vegan stuff is sort of associated with the left and then the um raw milk and you know buying a whole cow and putting it in your freezer is kind of associated with the right yeah, it feels it feels like the yeah, like you said, the left used to be preoccupied with um, he- healthy organic produce. All the hippies, all the liberals want to eat only organic, but now they're pushing things like Beyond Burgers or like Impossible yeah, Meat, yeah. you know, which is basically I don't even know what it is. Is it bugs? It's like completely <laughs> processed soy soy patties. Like I don't even know what it is, and. Um, they seem to be, I think it's because of like sort of like the climate change cult, which is its own religion. You know, cows are bad for the climate. Therefore, we must we must wean ourselves off of, you know, meat, uh, pork, chicken, and only eat, eat the bugs, eat the soy patties. It's a way of kind of saving the climate. But what it's really doing is distancing human beings from, you know, actual real food. And and the right is now saying, no, you know, we want, <laughs> you know, you should, we should be drinking raw milk and slonking the eggs and only eating completely unprocessed grass fed beef. That's, that's actually good, really good for you. And again and again, I'm seeing this, the, 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 the flip around of things mm. that used to be on the left and now are on the right, for example, like the idea of peace and being anti-war, you know, suddenly, you know, I, when I grew up, the right was the warmongers. They wanted to fight everywhere and invade the Middle East and kill all the people. And the left was saying, no war, do not invade, you know, give peace a chance. That has that has become one 180 degree flip in the last, I don't know, three or four years. It's really remarkable. And so it feels like the messages are just whatever the kind of, you know, Democrat elite, you know, leaders, the me- whatever the message is to them the people who want to kind of fit in to mainstream culture just instantly will adopt those messages without really thinking through the consequences or how it goes against, you know, they're sort of like liberal hippie, you know, I love the liberal hippie food. Like that's, that's good food. That, that, that was, that's something to aspire to. Mm. Um, It's very strange how corporatism has now become a liberal protectorate. Whereas the left used to hate corporations and hate the corporatization of food and factory farming, and it's flipped. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's part of this broader realignment. It's just we're seeing it at the sort of uh, almost microcultural level. Um, the only thing that the left and right do agree on is I think everyone is against factory farming. I don't think anyone's in favour of factory farming that I can think of. Who's the political factor? Probably maybe libertarians or something would say, just make stuff cheap. Yeah, that's a tough one. And, and mm. it's never talked about, and this is a sort of a tangent, but and I don't know a ton about you know, the ins and outs of factory farming, the the economics of it, but um, it's it's awful. And I would love to live in a world with no factory farming. I don't think, I think people should definitely be allowed to eat meat, but the way that we're producing it, is so is so really it's evil 
and it's yeah. unhealthy. It's bad for the people who work there. It's horrible for the animals, for the ecosystems of those ranches and farms. It's awful. And when I think about it, it makes me sick and it makes me, maybe I should become a vegetarian, you know? Um, maybe there is a way to, to reform it. But again, the corporate interests in America, so many of these big producers of poultry producers and pork are owned by China now. They've kind mm. of bought all these American factory food factories, which is a little bit a little bit alarming. Yeah, I mean, I guess a very sort of um, prominent note in whatever you want to call them—the new right, the online right, the dissident right, whatever—is anti-corporatism. It's a very strong, a very strong component of that way of thinking, which 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 I guess makes sense is is in in terms of the sort of um, particularly in America the history of kind of the pioneering independence, don't tread on me stuff. That's such a strong theme throughout American politics in general. And I guess now that corporations are becoming increasingly, the power of corporations has only grown. Yeah, that that don't tread on me flag is now considered, you know, that's a symbol of hate. Is if it? You, yeah, if you have that on your, like a bumper sticker or a flag, you're, that's like the ACLU has that, like no way. as one of their... That. Yeah, as one of their that that's a symbol of a far right hate movement, you know, um, where it used to be this American ethos of like independence yeah. and freedom from oppressive government, whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, all it's funny. I I talk about this a lot. I get asked a lot about you know American corporations, which have taken such a far left turn, um, Disney and Bud Light and Target and all this. And when you think about these great American companies, these kind of classic giant mega companies. They were all founded by basically Republicans, by capitalists, by in- great industrialists, you know, um, you know, white men who wanted to make money. And um, and like Walt Disney, um, he was a Republican and all these companies, all these great foundations were founded by conservative men who wanted to create an uh, uh, create, create wealth, create industry empire and kind of grow America. They kind of made made America the power that it is. All of the steel companies and the trains and all, you know, oil, the all the oil companies. These are all, you know, America was basically founded by like conservative, you know, white men. Sorry, I apologize about that. But um now they've all been overtaken. They've all from the top down by this sort of crazy kind of anti-capitalist um, ethos, which is no, the bottom line doesn't matter. The profits don't matter. What matters is making sure that everything we do, you know, increases our social credit score and increases our ESG score. And so that BlackRock will support us or lend money to us or whatever. And they're creating these incredibly awful products, bad services. Everything is sort of sucking right now in America. Um, products suck, services suck, everything kind of sucks. You can't get, you, there's no help at the wet restaurants, the, the product sizes, the packaging is getting smaller and smaller and the, everything is kind of worse quality. Um, but all they care about are their making sure that their workforce is diverse enough, making sure that their advertising is diverse and has, you know, transgender models in the commercials. It's so strange how they have forgotten <laughs> how to make money. <laughs> What's your theory for why sort of um, so many corporations have gone woke? Because some people say, oh, well, it's because they're trying to, they think the customers like it, Um, which seems obviously false to me. Like every poll I've ever read suggests that customers 
either don't like it or are indifferent to it. Um, I've always thought that probably what they're trying to do is actually to appease their kind of middle management because they've got all these people working for them who got into this ideology in university and some of these sort of senior baby boomers are scared of their staff and so they introduce this stuff to try and appease them but I don't know what do you think is there some other explanation that I'm missing I think I think that's definitely part of it um I think they're also trying to appease their wives I Mm. think that the problem in America is that that you know elite women you know the longhouse women of America the sort of like white suburban upper middle class um you know, graduates of top universities, these women are so bought in to feminism and, and, and leftism. And even if their husbands are sort of still, still kind of more sensible and kind of like, like Trump maybe a little bit, um, they're not, they, they, they can't get in trouble at home and they don't want their daughter, their teenage daughters, you know, will think that they're racist or, you know, evil, you know, are you, you're a Trumper if they don't fully embrace everything that, um, you know, the left wants. And so I think that like, for example, the CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, is this man some kind of ideological left-wing guy? Like, I I don't think so. I really don't think so. But I think that his world, he's surrounded by these, you know, elite women and he can't betray them, you know? And um, he would be, I mean, can you imagine, he can't risk that kind of social pariah status. And so that, you know, now it's been years of him being, you know, petted on the head by approving feminist women, his wife, his daughters, whoever, what he's so good. He supports us. You know, he's, he's an ally. And I think that people are so terrified of being, of being blackballed. You know, for me, I had to kind of renounce my past and like find new friends. I had to move houses. I had to kind of, well, there goes my like friendship with my like rich West side, couples who live in New York and LA and who have really fun parties and who know, they know famous people. I had to kind of say goodbye to that because I just couldn't fake it anymore. You know, I just, that's not me anymore. That was me, but they don't like me. If they knew who I really was, I won't fit in. The the peer pressure, the peer pressure, even at, you know, the CEO level to not be hated, to not have to do a groveling apology is so intense and they're not prepared to do that. You know, I think you and I are now like, well, we'll, we, we don't care anymore. Like we're oh, going to well. be able to, we're going to have, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, you're going on stage in a few weeks in LA and you're going to be defending your views in Los Angeles, like in front of an audience. But I, I promise you the audience will be on your side, but um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but you know, that can be scary. And I think that the last thing to fall in someone is the idea of being socially, be a social outcast. Yeah. That is like the terror that you have from the time that you're 12 years old in grammar school. You know, if you are an outcast, if you, the boys don't like you, if the girls make fun of you, your life is ruined. And a lot of the people who go into corporate America and business school are nerds. You know, they were the, they were the nerds in school. These were like the dorks who no one liked and they were just desperate to fit in. They were, they didn't get asked to the prom, you know, they didn't, they didn't get the girl they wanted. And then they went to business school and they became like successful businessman. But that inner inside, they're like these 14 year old pimply boys <laughs> who just want to be popular. I mean, I, I do think sort of psych- psychologically, it might have something to do with that. 
Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. But, and you see this even among extraordinarily wealthy people, right, who will be sort of debasing themselves for the sake of social approval. The thing that one of my friends said about this, I, I mean, it, it goes both ways as well in, in terms of someone like Elon Musk being desperate to be thought of as funny <laughs> on Twitter, you know, one of the richest men in the world, maybe the richest and all he wants is sort of Twitter clout. And um, what one of my friends said of this was um, uh, a lot of people have fuck off money, but no one has fuck off status. Wow. Yeah. Everyone is vulnerable to potentially losing their 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 social group. The reality is, if you've ever spent time among the very rich, among the very wealthy, among movie stars, if you've ever gone to their homes or their ranches in in Aspen, um, gone to their, you know, been in their at their parties, and just because of where I've worked in L.A. and Hollywood, I've been in these environments at these ultra rare air VIP, you know, I'm not one of them at all, (laughs) but I've been to these homes and to these restaurants and to these parties that are like highly exclusive and there's movie stars and stuff. And let me tell you something, that lifestyle is so unbelievably seductive. And when you taste it and just the level of service that they're given and the people are groveling and bowing to them and whatever they need, you know, it's just the level of privilege is so extraordinary that you do get around them and you think, okay, I, I'll renounce, I'll become a pro-choice liberal shit lib. Like, <laughs> Where do I just, sign? <laughs> yeah. What do I have to do to live this life? Are you kidding me? It's just so good, you know? And then you kind of shake your head. You go, no, 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 no. These people are, these people are satanic pedophiles. What am I doing? You know, <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> I'm going to go back to Aldi and, you know, and, and like freak out over the price of my groceries. But it is it is so seductive, just the aesthetics of it. They live this unbelievably refined, incredibly attractive lifestyle. And, you know, the right has no answer for that. We have no answer for that. You can go and, like, muck out a horse's barn and, like, you know, milk your cow, milk your stinky cow. That's what you get. <laughs> Wash your laundry in the, yeah, in the, in the river. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, that yeah, because that... What I know you're like, how do we get, how do we get our, how do we get know, that lifestyle? What do we need, like, mm-hmm. glamorous right wing? Yeah, no, <laughs> you just, Louise, you just nailed it. And I actually just was talking about the the, the glamour, the glamour effect mm. and the power of glamour. And a lot of people ask me all the time, I talk about this constantly with people on the right. How come the right doesn't have any cultural clout? How come we're sort of still in this sort of ghetto of like, you know, right-wing content and right-wing influencers and right-wing creative media and right-wing books and right-wing art. It sort of doesn't, it's so small and doesn't really exist and doesn't really have a big impact. It's sort of, it's it's in the ghetto, the right-wing ghetto. How do we break out? How does the right, people on the right, people or people just, you know, who like you who aren't necessarily fully on the right, but just don't want to take part in like far left, you know, mainstream culture. How do we present our story and like tell our story and make it appealing and attract more people to like attract young women out of feminism. How do we woo them away from feminism? Because right now that's where all the power is. That's where all the glamour is. That's where all the like fun is. And, you know, like I, I tweeted about this and I told you a little, I went to this like very elite VIP, you know, movie star social club members only place with movie stars and all the agents and just the, just the atmosphere of it was like so unbelievably sexy, seductive, glamorous, 
gorgeous. Like the food, the wait staff is unbelievably attentive. They're falling all over themselves to bring you water and bring you your special green juice or whatever it is. And these people were so attractive and so wealthy. And I was like, I'm not, and I'm not part of that world. I just happened to be there from one lunch. And I was like, okay, they, their aesthetics and really the aesthetics are trad. You know, there's greenery and water flowing and flowers and it's like a cottage. It's very, it's very, it's not modern. It's not postmodern. It's very traditional. It's speaking to the inner, it's almost like the Shire aesthetics, you know, of Tolkien. Like it's like Rivendell, you know, and these are the, these are the high elves and they're kind of all glowing in their money and their like beautiful hair and their tans and they're all on, they all have their own TV shows and they're all on this. And like, they're just so beautifully dressed and their cars are beautiful and it's Rivendell. It's so gorgeous, you know? And um, how do we, and this is like, maybe this is a project that I think about all the time. How do we bring glamour into our side and into our movement? And that's why Louise, let me just praise you for a moment. You are a wonderful spokeswoman for railing against the sexual revolution because you are not, you know, a like a lumpy, doughy, you know, gray-haired, frazzled, you know, farm lady in like an apron. You're this very glamorous, cosmopolitan, you know, gorgeous hot chick who is preaching this stuff. And that is very important. You know, that that is that is the key, I think, is that our side present role models who make it attractive, who like actually know it's okay to stay home with your with your baby and like work from home. Um, and you can do it and you can still be cool and you can still look cool. Note to my producer, please clip that bit. For <laughs> <laughs> distribute it on social media. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that maybe this is just an expression of me being um, too online and too contrarian. But I think that the right is cool, at least in, you know, you've mentioned bat. I mean, I this so anyone who doesn't know bronze age pervert recently profiled in the atlantic if you want to read up on this <laughs> you know weird internet figure but he do, he is glamorous actually oh yeah for sure um and other you know other people i mean it's a weird kind of glamour because obviously he's he's well, i mean well he's like his identity is quite widely known but he's basically an anonymous figure and he doesn't share photos of himself or anything so he's not exactly like um margot robbie um but well, i've heard i've heard through the grapevine that he's actually tall and quite handsome well, and presumably stacked because his whole thing is bodybuilding right unless it's and yeah, a and lie he, and he is a he is a he's not gay he's a straight man yeah yeah mm-hmm. there is a glamour associated with the right it's just at the moment it's it's so confined to kind of weird political obsessors on the internet that this yeah. is a, a long way from filtering down yeah it's so funny it's like this the aesthetic of like bodybuilding and health and his whole um yeah bap's whole um you know handsome thursday and like posting physique and <laughs> young men were yeah. post photos of their body you know bodybuilding like ripped ripped abs i mean that's wonderful and that's a great great antidote to the kind of dysgenic obesity sort of you see on like you know uh male feminist allies at abortion rallies they're all kind of these kind of overweight unattractive kind of feminized men with no with literally no balls in some cases they've been like castrated (laughs) mentally or spiritually or in reality yeah the right is i agree with you the right is cool i mean the parties i've been to with like these sort of kind of well-known figures on the right have been incredibly cool 
they're edgy. They're sort of counter. It's the counterculture. Um, it's it's awesome. I love it. Of course, now the ACLU has declared that bodybuilding is like what Nazis do. You know, <laughs> oh if you're goodness. a bodybuilder, be careful. That's toxic masculinity and that's racist or whatever. Um, it's just so funny because the left is promoting, you know, yoga and Pilates and he- fitness and health also. But it's like, don't do the masculine stuff. Don't touch those weights. Um, the trick is for me, how do we take this sort of fringe, edgy counterculture, this very, very cool aesthetic that is appealing to young men? You know, Gen Z men are way less liberal than women. They're they're much more conservative. I met a bunch at a book reading, college age guys in LA who were like loving, love, read BAP. They read Curtis Yarvin. They read me. They read guys like Delicious Tacos. They listen to Red Scare, you know, um, they're on board. It's just the women who kind of haven't gone along with it yet. And um, the trick is, how, okay, so how do we how do we take this sort of glamour that's on the kind of fringe right wing aesthetic and, and kind of make it inject it into main, the mainstream a little more? That's a great note to end the free part of the episode on. I do want to talk more about BAP, though, and masculinity um, in the paywall bit, because the relationship between masculinity and politics right now is really, really interesting. Um, oh, it's paywall, so we can get a little spicy. <laughs> <laughs> for everyone else who's listening, um, what's the uh, title of your book, and uh, and and when is it? It's out already, isn't it, in across the world? Yep, it came out in June. The title is Domestic Extremist, A Practical Guide to Winning the Culture War. You can buy it anywhere books are sold, and you can follow me at Keenan Peachy on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Peachy. Thank you, Louise.